The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8 and 14. For I delivered, you as, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Rachel. Well, again, welcome to you. Glad you're here with us this morning, and um, glad to be able to talk about this passage with us. You know, um, I don't know if you've ever been to, I talked to a couple of my friends about this, been to Disney World before. Uh, great place. And you know, it's one of those things you, you see the commercials and it plays itself up as, hey, this is the magic kingdom, right? I mean, this is the fantasy where you can kind of come with your family and escape some of the reality of what you've been living in and everything else. And it plays itself out as that until you get there and then reality comes on a collision course with that fantasy. And uh, you see a bunch of, you know, different uh, <laughs> families yelling at each other, let's eat over here. I, wanna, I can't ride that. Um, and those kind of things. But I, to me, it, it, it was very stark when uh, we were in... Uh, the Magic Kingdom, and riding the Nemo ride, very beautiful, harmless, uh, wonderful place, Uh, and all the singing and crabs singing to me and, you know, those kind of things. Sitting in the clamshell, and, you know, uh, my wife has her camera, her phone, and wants to take a quick picture before the things get going, and it starts to move a little bit, and uh, my brother-in-law, says, no, 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 let me take it. I'll grab it. He's in a clamshell next to us. Of course, you know, clamshell to clamshell. Grabs the phone and in transition fumbles it and it drops between clamshells. And we've already started going. We're about to round that corner. Well, I instinctively think, oh, well, I got to get this thing. I step out of the shell and as soon as my foot hits that uh, conveyor belt, you know, uh, lights come up, whole thing shuts down. Every, you know, you know, crabs were singing now are staring at me. Um, the people literally grab me by the arm and escort me out. And, uh, (laughs) and I'm like, well, no, 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 the phone's down there. They're like, no, you, you must step out of this, right? You cannot get out of the clamshell, sir. And so as we walk out, uh, my whole family, you know, they, they, run it through, they're going through, and I'm out getting a major lecture from everybody about how I ruined the Nemo ride. And I said, look, I had to, it was just right there. It was between the thing. They go, you wouldn't step out of a moving car, would you? I said, there was a clamshell going two miles an hour and uh, with no seatbelt, you know, if you want to compare, you know, that didn't go over well either. My, my family literally thought it was going to be, and you can be kicked out of the kingdom a magic kingdom, that is, uh, for the entirety if you do that, I found out later. I, I got a free pass somehow. But that really is the, the, the reality, isn't it? And, you know, when, when this chapter was written, Paul wrote this, 
he was writing about the resurrection and he was writing to a church addressing the fact that they were wondering, how does this, this resurrection story actually impact mine? How does the, the resurrection not talk about as a f- fantasy or some magical thing that, that helps us escape reality, but actually addresses it, comes into it, transforms it, makes the, the, the harsh difficulty we're in now beautiful? How does it do that? Because that's what Paul is getting at. In fact, this entire chapter is dedicated to the fact that if the resurrection, if Christ had not been raised, verse 14, then our, my preaching is in complete vain and our faith is in vain. And why would he say something so stark? Because if the resurrection doesn't really address and come into the reality of our lives, then it really is in vain. It's not anything but just a cool story or a magical thing that we can talk about and maybe hope could be a real thing one day. So what we're going to look at, and this is actually the beginning of a three-part series we're going to have beginning today. We're going to talk first today, what's the story of the resurrection? And we're going to look at it with these two questions. How far does this story go? How far does the resurrection reach? And how deep does it go? Right? How deep down in us? How, how deep does it go in us to actually change us? How far and how deep? You know, the bigger picture is given here, <clears throat> even at the very beginning, when he says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. So he talks about being something received and also delivered. So when he talks about received and delivered, that there's something more, that this goes back further. It's a bigger picture than what Paul is just talking about. It's not just about him. And Paul wants us to know right up front, it doesn't begin with him and it doesn't end with him. It's something that was given to him. He's transmitting it. In fact, what the language used here in Greek was a technical rabbinic term for transmission of an established tradition. Something that was received that was also passed on, passed down personally. And what did he receive? He received this. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He received what is, was considered the euangelion, the good news. And what that language meant is the good news was something that was the good news that was passed down with joy. In fact, you, the word you in there is joy. It was news, and angelion was news. So it was news that provoked joy. In fact, it wasn't really actually, uh, that language wasn't typically just a religious term. It was used even in Jesus' time uh, regarding Caesar Augustus. There is, uh, there's that and a, other, a lot of lang- common language saying the, the euangelion of Caesar Augustus, talking about his birth, talking about uh, his life. And it was news that brought report that, that changed things. You know, recently, I'm sure like you, I've been reading a lot of news about Russia and Ukraine. And one of the things that has happened recently is one of Russia's uh, largest, if not their largest ship, has been sunk. It was their, the Moskova. It was their uh, guided missile cruiser. In fact, it was the first and largest ship that had been sunk by, for Russia since World War II. And it was such an enormous event for them that it's caused a lot of stir, even amongst Ukraine. The fact that this is the second ship that's been sunk. But what I found was interesting as I read more and more about 
this that the BBC or CNN or NBC or whatever else was reporting was the 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 trying to spin how the ship sank but couldn't do it. This is what it read. One said, while Moscow has denied the Ukrainian version of the events that the Moskva sunk after being struck by Ukrainian missiles, it was never le- nevertheless forced to admit the ship went down. That actually is Evangelion. That is news that doesn't warrant an opinion but in a reaction. There's as much spin as you can put on that as much as possible. But the ship sank. <laughs> they have to deal with it. And one side is rejoicing, one is, is saddened. But that's news that transforms, news that changes something. Evangelion was news that wasn't just news that just reported. It talked about victories. It talked about an ascension of a king. And in this instance, when it's used about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, it was trying to tell us, just like these other events but different, it is a history transformational event. It changes history. It changes time. It's a story that transforms history and those within it. And it warrants joy. It's a reaction that if Jesus actually raised from the the grave, it's saying he, he rose again that death, the greatest enemy that we have in life, has been overcome. It's a history shaping event that changed everything. Christ died and was buried. But notice he doesn't just say that. He says, in accordance with the scriptures. He says it not only once, but twice. That this wasn't a one-off event. This isn't something that just happened as a resurrection. It's a story that connects to so many other people's stories that were looking forward towards this. See, the Bible is different than what some of us may think. It's not like any other textbook. It's not like a novel. It's a grand tapestry of story of lives that are impacted, looking forward to someone who's going to come and actually change their life. It's looking forward to this euangelion. One of my favorite authors is a guy named G.K. Chesterton who writes a lot about fantasy and imagination and why we have that. He was kind of a precursor to C.S. Lewis. And one of the things he talks about is that we are always looking for more. He says, our stories are looking for a grander story. He said this, fairy tales do not give the child his first idea of the boogie, or that is the boogeyman. What fairy tales give the child is this first clear idea of possible defeat of the boogie. The baby has known the dragon intimately ever since he had an imagination. What the fairy tale provides for him is a St. George to kill the dragon. See, deeply embedded in all of us, we know that there's a grand enemy. All of us have to face it. It's in front of all of us. And it's not just sin in us and what we confess. It's also its product. It is death. It is that thing that is ahead of us. But what all of those longing, what it, this in accordance to the scriptures was saying, is that everyone along that timeline was looking for someone who would come to actually defeat that, that there's, we, there's something embedded in us that knows that we're not supposed to die. Death is really not supposed to be. 
we know this even when we say goodbye to someone we love, even when we're saying goodbye and they're going on a plane somewhere else or, or we live far away from family, there's that longing, that separation, that we know that separation is not a good thing. And the ultimate separation is that death. And there were those, according to the scriptures, that knew and longed for Jesus' day and longed for not just a resurrection, but the resurrection. Someone who would come and defeat the boogie. Here it is. There are a number of passages that say this. Abraham was one of those. Let's start even with him. In John 8, uh, it says this, your father Abraham, Jesus was saying, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day and he saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old, and how have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Moses and Elijah and Luke, it says now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What Jesus was unpacking with them, it was to say his departure is the same word exodus. It's actually the Greek word exodus that can, it connects to the Old Testament exodus. It means what he was saying to Moses and Elijah. You remember the big exodus, he said. You remember the exodus where God brought the people through the Red Sea, all those stories that you hear, all those grand narratives of God rescuing his people out of Egypt. I'm about to perform the greatest exodus, the one that that one points towards, that's going to bring all of those out of death into life. And it even ends with David, another one in Acts chapter 2. Brothers, I say to you, with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor his flesh see corruption. According to the scriptures, all along the timeline of history, everyone is looking for this. They know their story does not end by that greatest enemy, that there has to be someone that can defeat the greatest enemy, that even these figures were looking forward to it, that it goes as far and wide as history longs. And it's not just those characters and those people that had real lives and real places and real space and time, that the resurrection hit their reality. It hit their reality, whether it was Abraham wandering, it was Moses and Elijah and their, and their difficulty of dealing with uh, their own uh, issues within internally. Elijah struggled with depression. Moses struggled with speaking and stuttering. David himself, who struggled in his story with murder and adultery, and yet he longed to see someone who would redeem his story that that wouldn't be what defined him. See, here's the question. Not just how far does it go? How deep does it go? How does it really impact your story and mine? How does the resurrection really hit us? If there's a word that's repeated over and over in this passage, and it starts with verse five, and that he appeared to Cephas in the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers in one time. He appeared to James, appeared again. He appeared over and over and over. 
Why is that so important? Because the appearing is actually a language that lets us know that this wasn't just some uh, magic trick. In fact, the Greek word for appear is the word for optic. It means their vision was actually taken in by the reality of someone who had raised from the dead. And he gives over and over this. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote an, uh, an essay on fairy stories. And it's really interesting. You may have read his books or heard about the Lord of the Rings or seen the movies or all those kind of things. Uh, But he wrote an essay called On Fairy Stories. And in it, he uses a word that I had never really um, heard before. It's called eucatastrophe. You know, we heard the word euangelion, which is the good news. He he uses a word called eucatastrophe. And what he means by that, he says that this is called a sudden joyous turn. Instead of joyous news, this is a sudden joyous turn. Listen to what he says. He says, the Gospels contain a fairy story or a larger story kind, which embraces the essence of all fairy stories. They contain many marvels, peculiarly artistic, beautiful, and moving, mythical in their perfect self-contained significance. And among the marvels is the greatest and most complete conceivable eucatastrophe, that is sudden joyous turn. But this story has entered history and the primary world. The desire and aspiration of subcreation has been raised to the fulfillment of creation. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. The resurrection is the joyous turn for everyone that Paul lists. Think about this. The first one he lists is Cephas. In fact, that's a different way of saying Peter's name. The apostle Peter, the one who actually denied Jesus three times. How much do you think the resurrection meant to Peter after his last moments with Jesus were to deny him? And not just once, but three times. The one that he had followed for years was now living with the guilt of denial. Did the resurrection come to him as just a figure? Would it be enough for him to, for it to be figurative or emotional? No, it had to be a sudden joyous turn, a sudden eucatastrophe that hit him hard, that would transform him to know that This one has come back for me. The same it says for the 12, not just for Peter who denied him, but for the 12 who deserted him. That they were hiding in a room, it says after this. Deserted, run away, and who comes to find them? The resurrected Jesus. What causes such a sudden turn for the entire 12 apostles to change their life in order to give their lives up after they had deserted him? It also then says that there were not just that, not just these singular events, but one that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, 500 people, that the resurrection wasn't just something to be hidden. It was actually that Jesus, as we said, used the word um, optically, appeared the vision. He came to them physically, tangibly in front of them. Tim Keller, who's an amazing pastor up in New York City, you've probably heard his name, heard heard of his books possibly. If you haven't, I'd encourage you to read him and uh, listen to his sermons. He actually had an opportunity to speak at Google uh, years ago when one of his books came out. 
And at the end of it, you can actually watch it on YouTube. It's, it's amazing to watch this whole interaction. At the end of it, there's a Q&A with him, with all the Google representatives uh, that work there and Tim Keller. And at one point, there's someone at the end, uh, and I don't know his name, so I'll, I'll just refer to him as Google guy. But this guy says to him, uh, has a couple questions about the resurrection. He says, well, let me give you a couple scenarios. He says, uh, okay, interestingly enough, he says, what if I'm actually God? And if you don't bow down and worship me, then I will send you to hell. And my hell's a lot worse than the Christian hell. It has a lot of things in it, uh, like mother-in-laws and all these things that you don't like. And you're probably not going to worship me, but why not? Tim Keller says this. If you died on the cross after living a life in which everybody is amazed at the quality of it, and then afterwards, hundreds of people see you with nail prints at, and 500 at a time, repeated over 40 days, well, that's different. Then people might start to say, people who didn't believe are now believing. They come and see you. They put their fingers in the nail prints. They, that, <clears throat> that's a different situation. That's really what you have with Christianity. And the Google guy says, well, think of this. Okay, that did actually happen. But it happened to me in Antarctica. And you probably didn't hear about it, and I can't provide you any rational evidence for it. But it did happen. But Tim Keller retorted, and he said this. But Christians would never say that. They would say, here's the eyewitness accounts. Here's the 500 people that 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote only 15 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, that you can go and ask all these people. This is why he lists them. Here's 500 people who saw Jesus at once in his appearances. And he says, most of them are still alive. Go ahead and go talk to them. Here they are. But you're not doing that. So what you have and what you're saying is that I can't give you any witnesses. Paul says, I don't want you to believe in Christianity unless you can go talk to these people. They're there. And you're not able to provide the same otherwise because this connects to their actual story. The reality of the resurrection doesn't leave their reality to be some magical thing that Jesus talked about over and over and over. It connected to the reality so that they knew their suffering, their difficulty, and all the things they were trying to make sense of were wrapped up in this one who caused a sudden turn in their life. You know, one of the people that he mentions here is James. James was actually the brother of Jesus. If you want to know something personal and think about the resurrection getting personal, the brother of Jesus, that, if you read the Gospels, the, throughout his entire life, James actually, think about it, can you imagine growing up with Jesus? I mean, every time, who gets in trouble? Not Jesus. James in trouble all the time. Do you know that it says in the Gospels when Jesus began teaching that James actually said, it says James and his brothers thought Jesus was out of his mind. They thought he was crazy. They're like, what is up with Jesus? mom, dad? What is he doing? You can read it in the accounts of the Gospels that they didn't like him. Do you know that James only became a follower of Jesus after Jesus resurrected? That it was throughout their family life. Think about that. Think about how personal it was to him. You can be raised in the actual home 
of Jesus and not believe that he was who he says he was until his story found the sudden turn of joy in the fact that his brother was not dead but standing right in front of him. And he could feel the piercings in his arms. And he could see the marks on his feet. And instead of simply thinking what it was like to grow up around Jesus, now he was bowing to him. And do you know that James himself would become the leader of the church in Jerusalem? You know what's incredible about this story is that that it hits us so deeply and profoundly that Paul writing this, you know, it, it would be easy to look at this and say, okay, these are great stories. But, you know, how does it really, how does the rubber really meet the road? You know, the one writing this, Paul, finishes this passage by saying, then he appeared to James, then to the, all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, <clears throat> he appeared also to me. Paul is wanting us to know that this can't be some figurative dream. Because if it was, then it would mean nothing for the sake of Paul's story. Paul knows, just like everyone else, what he used to be to the church. He used to kill those who would follow Jesus. Men, women, and children he would throw into prison, drag them off. There are accounts of him murdering those and giving approval doing so. And yet his narrative, to, if this is figurative, does that help? If you are like him and the guilt and things in your life and the patterns that you see and the ways that you come even to a service like this and may feel like, man, I feel fake. I know what I looked at last week. I know what I wasn't honest about this week. I know how I speak to my family and friends. If the resurrection isn't something that that comes into our reality in, as a real work of God himself and Jesus, then how do we actually address those things? Some time ago, there was a TED Talk that, call, that talked about the two kinds of stories we tell about ourselves. And it was by a Northwestern University psychologist named Dan McAdams. And he talked about narrative identity, how we actually create narrative identities. And he said that we have <clears throat> two kinds of parts of our identity that we want to build, to try and make valuable ones. He said we have redemptive side and contaminated sides. And one of the things that we're trying to do over and over is to build into our lives the positive, which would be the redemptive elements of that into our narrative accounts. To, to build like our own, as he says, narrative identity is an internalized story that we create about ourselves, almost like a personal myth. Like myths, our narrative identity contains the heroes and villains. And we want people to understand us in those parts. We want to see us in those parts. But what if you're a person, and this is where it goes, that you cannot edit out any of the things that you wish you could in your story. Paul can't edit out those things. He doesn't even try. What if you are like that? You see, here's where the resurrection really gets to the heart of you and me. Because if you're like me and you know the things that you can't edit out and simply seem to not have the power to, 
the resurrection doesn't say you need to edit those out. It actually comes into those parts of you. It creates a whole redemptive story of you with those all included. The resurrection is for those who think that there is no hope in their story. The resurrection is for those whose fear is being kicked out. If people only knew me, they wouldn't even ask me to this church. If people knew me, if God really knew my heart, if I, I really confessed what I thought I should confess, then my story would be overlooked. The resurrection says no. You see, what brought Jesus out of the grave was his defeat and saying, I am the ultimate edit of your story. If you want to know how far this resurrection goes, it goes to the depths of you to transform the shame that you cannot run away from, to make you whole, to make you the one that not just every, you think everybody else that you should be for them. But for those of us who know that we have, don't have any excuses left, and we're scared to even be truthful about it. This is the reality of the resurrection story. It is your sudden turn. It is the sudden news of joy that leaps, not only stretches the span of time, but gets to the depths of the core of you. No matter where you come from, it swallows it up in that so that you may rejoice as those across history and time did, that this is your savior. And this resurrection is your reality. Praise be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord, the fact that you would go to the lengths that you have to heal us from trying to edit our own stories, from the exhaustion of the constant posting we do, not just literally, literally, but figuratively, to try and present the best version of us. And yet you knew that Paul in no way could do that. There was no amount of him trying to leave the rest behind or even use it as a great thing. And, and if the resurrection was simply a, a figurative thing or a or merely a, a wish or a dream, then it wouldn't even touch the guilt and shame that he would have, nor be a sudden turn. We need that sudden turn. Would you remind us again that you were not held in a grave, that you are not one who went to death unwillingly, but did so willingly for our sin, was buried, stayed in the ground, quiet that Saturday was, and then burst forth again because we are in Christ alone who swallows our story up, every bit of it, so that we might rejoice together knowing that not only is our sin dealt with, but death no longer reigns. You do. Praise be to our Lord and Savior and risen, Jesus Christ. Amen.